and welcome to the Presto Classical Podcast. We have a very special show coming up as we are going on a Scandinavian sojourn, exploring the culture, landscape and history of the Nordic nations with a very special tour guide. Andrew Meller, what so inspired you about the Nordic nations that you moved to Copenhagen in 2015? Uh, well, good question, uh, Paul. Um, in a sense, it was a kind of opportune move because I... Uh, spotted that there was an absence of an English language uh, correspondent here for a number of um, opera and music magazines. But um, I mean, I was really interested in Scandinavian culture. Um, it came quite late to me. I mean, I, I was kind of, you know, raised on Britain and Wagner and uh, around about, I guess, the mid noughties, I started to become interested in um, in Finland, this very distinct culture, mainly through photography and painting, and then kind of worked my way back a little bit through the Nordic countries started taking little weekend trips and yeah it snowballed from there really and I was working on Gramophone magazine at the time and before that Classic FM magazine and seeing this wealth of recordings coming out of these countries and um, you know orchestras that seem to really mean business and uh, new concert halls and opera houses swinging up so yeah it seemed like a, a, a fun place to come and explore for what was supposed to be a year but has ended up being a, a little longer. We start, of course, with Denmark's most famous musical son, Carl Nielsen. Andrew, which symphony of his six have you picked as a fine example of Danish culture in music? Well, um, we're going to go with the third, which was actually my own way into uh, Nielsen's music. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just a tremendous piece, but um, it shows us both sides of Nielsen, really. The sort of popular composer, uh, songwriter and Nielsen, the symphonist, and also Nielsen's own sort of personal struggle, I think, between his uh, his roots, you know, this kind of um, rural poor boy made good and his um, ultimate uh, uh, status, which was, you know, Denmark's national composer. And um, yeah, that's a really interesting thing for Danes. You know, Hans Christian Andersen obviously was a poor boy made good from the same island as uh, Nielsen. And it's a long running theme um, in Denmark and uh, to some extent through Scandinavia. But this symphony really... Uh, sums it up, I think. It's fair to say that Nielsen's Third Symphony isn't perhaps one of his most popular symphonies outside of Denmark, but would it be right to say that it's the most Danish of his symphonies? And if so, why would that be? Yeah, it certainly is one of the most Danish, actually probably the most Danish, because uh, from the Fourth Symphony onwards, you know, Nielsen was really sort of exploring the avant-garde and making statements, you know, about international affairs, war and so on. And in, in the Sixth Symphony, you know, the sort of state of music. But in this piece, the third, it's no less important and no less progressive in many ways, because um, we really sense Nielsen testing, pushing symphonic form in a very kind of Danish way. So the last movement, it's best to kind of deal with the fact that the last movement is slightly different in terms in terms of the fact that it's kind of just this broad song, uh, a tune that may well have formed one of um, Carl Nielsen's many songs. You know, he wrote hundreds of songs um, in his lifetime and they're still sung today. And when I say they're still sung today, you know, I really mean they are sung today. During the pandemic lockdown, the, the state broadcaster gave over each morning on television to a sort of communal national sing song in which the idea was families would just gather around and sing these songs together with a guy on the piano on television. And a lot of the songs were Carl Nielsen. You know, people just know them. They're not art songs. They're kind of more like folk songs. So we have in the last movement this feeling of the broad, very kind of uh, Funen style song, Funen the island Nielsen was from with a kind of flat horizon and kind of big sky. And in the first movement, um, 
just this furious energy, you know, the, the, the energy that's carried forward into the, the later symphonies. And in my mind, in real confrontation with Nielsen, the kind of young uh, rural lad from the countryside, you get this sophisticated waltz theme and, um, and, uh, and, and you get this kind of rural triad combined fighting each other. And I think in the excerpt we're going to hear, we hear them, you know, there's the, there's the moment of rupture where these two things just rub up against each other in the symphony and explode in this kind of fissile way. Okay, well, let's hear an excerpt then. This is, of course, Carl Nielsen's third symphony, performed by the Gothenburg Symphony Orchestra and conducted by Myung Won Chung. say, Andrew, that there's a connection between the Danish language and Nielsen's unique symphonic style? Yeah, I think to some extent there is. And, you know, the reason for starting in Denmark is because uh, um, a lot of Scandinavians, Nordic people won't thank me for saying so, but things kind of start linguistically, um, if you discount Finland, from from, uh, Denmark because it was the colonial power for so many years. And um, the Danish language, of course, basically shaped what we know as modern Norwegian. Norwegians and the Swedes find it just unfathomable that this language is so kind of guttural and it doesn't at all sound like the kind of uh, airy fairy Scandinavian that we that we think of, which is, you know, more or less a hybrid of Norwegian and Swedish. Danish is sort of staccato. It's at the back of the throat, um, a mouthful of potatoes that the Norwegians say you need to have. The opening of almost all the Nielsen symphonies actually open with this sort of breathless kind of quite sort of staccato, uh, fissile, um, guttural uh, sound. And um, I, I've always felt there's there's a, a connection. I mean, Danish has a lyricism, a wonderful lyricism. You hear it in Nielsen's operas and, uh, and his songs. But I also think that the force of the language, you know, Danish is a fantastic language to be angry in. Uh, I think the force of the language really comes across um, in the symphonies. Fantastic. And Nielsen, of course, paved the way for a wide variety of contemporary Danish composers, including Wagen Homboy, Per Norgard, Hans Abrahamsen, and our next composer, a composer who actually lives close to Andrew in Copenhagen. Andrew, why have you picked a piece by Bent Sorensen as a prime example of contemporary Danish composition? Well, I think Sorensen's music is just is really beautiful, um, fundamentally. There's good enough reason. But I also think he, he's quite a fascinating figure in the sense that he... Um, he taps into this idea of, uh, you know, melancholy and uh, uh, and um, the the sort of the dark side of the Scandinavian mindset in many ways. Uh, but yeah, he's a craftsman. Uh, his music is so distinct, so recognisable, and recently very much acclaimed. He won the Gormier Prize, and thanks to De Capo, um, you know, we've had plenty of recordings of his music coming. And which recording have you selected as an example? Well, we're going to hear an excerpt from the, the most recent um, recording from Ben Sorensen, which is a disc of three concertos. And this is the piano concerto played by Leif over Ansnes. Sorensen plays with a chorale tune in this concerto. Like many of his pieces, you kind of, you only really hear the full expression 
right in the, in the dying seconds. So this is in this piece that the piano kind of tries to sing out this chorale, but really only can do so for the very end of the last fourth movement. Um, similar thing happens in the trumpet concerto. Similar thing happens in the clarinet concerto and in the first piano concerto and in, and in the violin concerto. This is the second uh, of the piano concertos. Obviously, the chorale is a sort of way in for many people as well. So I think it's it's a good example of how Sorensen kind of creates his own very distinct world from kind of existing material. was Bent Sorensen's La Matina, performed by Leif Overensnes, the Norwegian Chamber Orchestra, and conducted by Per Christian Skalstad. Yes, Andrew, I was fascinated by the almost apathetic way in which Bach's Lutheran chorale is used here in La Matina. It's very different to perhaps the famous usage of Bach's in, say, Berg's Violin Concerto. Is this perhaps a commentary on the declining role of Lutheranism and religion generally in Danish society? I wouldn't put it quite like that. I mean, I think... Um... Danish society has always been quite secular and in the same way it's always been you know pretty much hardwired into the church a state church here in Denmark uh, where everybody pays a church tax unless they opt out I mean Luther is everywhere in a city like Copenhagen you you can't um, move for Lutheran churches and by that I mean in the built in the Lutheran style you know with these glass windows a sort of certain austerity the idea being that you know you look out at God's work through the windows in nature to to understand the kind of basis of Lutheran faith. You know, there aren't many churchgoers in, in Denmark, but Lutheranism is a sort of huge cultural force still. It it's kind of lies behind the basis of the social democratic system that underpins life here. It's very much uh, behind a lot of the sort of social codes of conduct, a certain propriety, a huge levels of trust both in the government and each other. Of course, you know, the eradication of poverty, this was a effectively a Lutheran principle turned into a government policy, you know, a high tax welfare state. And also, you know, I think we often talk about um, uh, national identity and, and, you know, it's important to realise that a lot of people in Denmark have no connection to Luther specifically and to the chorale tradition that came out of Luther. But then we all listen to the national anthem. You know, we all, at the World Cup, we all hear... 15, 20 national anthems based on Lutheran hymnody. And I, so I think it's kind of impossible not to escape this. I was talking to Ben Sorensen once about this because he's writing a, a St. Matthew Passion and I asked him if he's a religious man. And he said, well, you know, I'm not a churchgoer and I don't have a particularly strong faith, but you just cannot deny the DNA of uh, of this country and the culture and, you know, even the doubters, the religious doubters who formed such a strong part of the conversation here. You know, and it, it's a... It's, it seems to me a, a kind of inescapable truth, really, in Scandinavia, but both musically, culturally and politically. And we'll be exploring Norway's attitude to Lutheranism later on in the show. 
Now, another strong Scandinavian tradition is a very negative outlook on life in literature and the arts. One thinks of the existentialism of Kierkegaard, the psychological dramas of Ibsen, perhaps most famously the terror of Munch's The Scream. Yet Scandinavians continually top opinion polls of the happiest nations on earth. How can you explain this dichotomy? I wish I could explain it, Paul. I'm working on a book at the moment trying to piece together some of the big themes about Nordic music in relation to Nordic culture, and this is one of the chapters. It's 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 really fascinating. And Ben Sørensen actually is a good example of someone who kind of personifies it. You know, you meet him, he insists he's very happy and uh, and uh, and he's um, has a wonderful life, and then you kind of hear his music, and it's kind of very <laughs> difficult to, to 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 imagine that he's that he's being honest with you. But I mean. Part of it is um, Scandinavians have low expectations. You know, they're, they're quite easily pleased in some ways. There's, there's no point worrying in, in Scandinavia about, about getting rich because the richer you get, the more money you'll have to give to the state. You'll end up holding on to a tiny proportion of it. And there's no point worrying about getting poor because you won't get poor because of the, the social welfare system. So I think, in, you know, in a country you know, far away where this is, isn't as rich and lucky as Denmark. People are worried about their, where their next meal is coming from. And I think in Scandinavia, there's a tendency now that everything works so perfectly and, and the sort of systems are in place to protect people that, that people start to think about why why they're alive and uh, what what the point of life is. So the, the, the introspection is a huge thing, of course, alcohol, uh, weather, um, the, these things play into it. But, you know, I remember when I first moved to Copenhagen in the summer of 2015, spring of 2015, we'd all been watching uh, The Killing on TV in, in England, you know, uh, this, this this fantastic TV series in which Copenhagen is constantly dark, constantly wet. Everyone's grappling with self-doubt and communication issues, you know, even the good guys. And then I arrived here and it was just blazing sunshine, you know, 18 hours a day and everybody wandering around with a beer with broad smiles on their face and swimming in the harbors i think i think it's very much a case of you know scandinavians like to live their emotions to the season so they enjoy being a little bit melancholy in winter they enjoy letting loose in summer and uh, they kind of almost um you know like to to go with it a bit and uh, compartmentalize but you know there's an awful lot of minor keyed, slow, droney music coming out of Scandinavia now. And when you look at it, you know, there was in the, in the 1700s um, and earlier even, you know, Buxtehude was Danish, born in, in, in Danish-controlled Sweden. And it's funny how his music, um, you know, seems to get it's, it's a little bit more major and jubilant um, the, the closer he gets to travelling south to Lübeck, uh, where he eventually ended up. But... Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a big thing. And I think um, it has to do with the duality and to do with uh, mindset and also, you know, certain comfort with dark thoughts and deep expression. Perhaps it's an image that they like to present to the world of themselves, even though it's not necessarily how they feel. Yeah, well, yeah. And I think even more so is an image that we like to project onto them. You know, there's a certain exoticism about um, the Scandinavian melancholy, but, you know, that's an academic trope, and lots of academics would, would argue that. But having lived here, you know, these people can be seriously melancholic. And in Denmark, you know, there's, there, it goes back to what you said about language. There's no word for please. You have to work extremely hard to get a thank you out of somebody. And um, talking to a stranger in the street is more or less, uh, you know, akin to assault. So 
you know, it, oh. it's different. Okay, well, I think we best off leave Copenhagen behind then and follow the path of many a Viking and head out towards the North Sea. And we first stop off on the Faroe Islands, a tiny island situated between Scotland and Iceland. Andrew, what music awaits us as we step off the ferry? Well, lots of music actually would literally await you as you stepped off the uh, ferry or uh, plane, I think, probably, Paul, because it's a long ferry journey. Uh, But um, the Faroes is... It's, uh, again, this is a uh, something that's going to be a focus in the, the book I'm working on. It, it, it's a really unique set of circumstances. A kind of, um, you know, if you think of Iceland being this incredible musical ecosystem in, in miniature full of talent, then, you know, the Faroes kind of focuses it down even more. Um, you have a very uh, uh, kind of inbuilt music tradition where music is, is not sort of something that's done for... Um, or kind of commercial or or even uh, particularly intellectual means it's just a community activity uh, there's a very strong tradition of um, chain dancing reciting the, the ballads in a chain dance which is effectively a song even though it's called a dance this is the sort of thing that Sabadus was you know um, exploring in Finland their equivalent but in the pharaohs it still happens and it's still taught in schools it's a kind of living vernacular tradition and it's really interesting to watch a country kind of form itself musically. There's a composer there, Sunleif Rasmussen, who um, is becoming well-known internationally, has had his pieces performed in, at, the, at the Barbican in London and elsewhere. And the sort of flotilla of activity forming around him and this very strong popular music culture, which cannot help but cross-fertilise because everybody knows everybody. So, you know, the, the pop singers, Ava and Tator, they know Sunleif, they get him to orchestrate their pieces sometimes and um, yeah it forms this really fascinating rich musical ecosystem you mentioned their tater i believe we have an excerpt from tater's 2016 album confessions yeah this is an album that tater made with nico muli the american composer i mean tater like a lot of ferraris musicians ava palastotti the most famous it's kind of difficult to pin down you know um, they don't really see classical music as something different they'll produce a classical album and then another pop album afterwards it's just the sort of the way they work and I think it's quite wonderful really and this piece is one of my favorites from this album which is really beautiful made with the Holland Baroque Society the world has many faces Some of them recite In small spaces So that was Small Spaces from Confessions, an album by Taito and Nico Muley. What struck me about this was the complete lack of artifice uh, on this album and a combination with sort of a neo-barockery, which you think wouldn't work at all, but yet somehow does. Yeah, I absolutely completely agree. And also, you know, it, funnily enough, well, well, actually, Taito made an album many years ago before this called The Singer. And the first song, he, he, he kind of literally just um, sits at the piano and says... Um, sings I always wanted to be a singer and now you know here I am singing about what I'm feeling and you paid to hear it and you're sitting here and listening and 
isn't this all weird? It's sort of very little description of, of his art. And uh, there's a certain sense to me that he's distilled, you know, he, he's wanted to sort of distill his artistry right down over the years. And, and he did so in The Singer. And then with this album, with um, with Nico Muli, he, he does he does again, but in a slightly different direction. And uh, yeah, a total lack of artifice, like you say. And this, and this wonderful voice, you know, he's got this such a frank... A beautiful voice. He came on television live one Friday night during the early days of the lockdown here in Denmark. And because of the relationship between the Faroe Islands and Denmark, he's very well known here and sang live one of one of um, his songs from the side of a mountain on the Faroes with this huge seascape behind him, the sun sort of slowly setting. You know, it certainly wasn't small spaces of, of the song we just heard. But uh, yeah, it was just a wonderful moment. And I think his voice is such a, a special instrument. You mentioned there the relationship between the Faroes and the Kingdom of Denmark. Now, the Faroe Islands are an autonomous region within the Kingdom of Denmark, but do they manage to maintain a distinct cultural identity from Denmark and Scandinavia in general? They do. I mean, they're, a very, they're very much an independent nation, and that vernacular music tradition I mentioned is part of it. And, you know, Sunday for Asmussen, the composer, is busy kind of forging a... a, a a national sound in, in art music, in notated music, much like um, Sibelius Grieg did before him. There are members of parliament, both the Faroes sitting in the Danish government. The, the, the Queen of Denmark is also the Queen of the Faroe Islands. And there's a lot of crossover because students are sent here to study, prisoners are sent here to serve their sentences. It's still the sort of sovereign nation in some ways. We now continue on our northwards journey to Iceland, an island that has appropriately seen an eruption of creative compositional energy in the past few years. Andrew, what have you picked as an example of this? Well, we're going to hear a piece by Anna Torvaldsdottir. Um, I mean, sure, she'll be very well known to many people because she's sort of emblematic of this new generation of Icelandic composers um, who... Of, of off the off the back of I guess the legacy of Jon Leifs, the first great Icelandic composer, have um, continued to explore the kind of uh, the very specific uh, geology topology of the, of their country in music, and Anna does so in a way that's just really fascinating and and beautiful. The orchestra really is her medium, and we've seen you know orchestras falling over themselves to commission her. She was a Kravis young composer at the New York Philharmonic. Um, and uh, she works a lot with orchestras around the world, has a Berlin Philharmonic premiere next season. And the way she writes for orchestras mesmerizing, I mean, you can talk about the Icelandic uh, features in it, you know, the kind of um, the reflection of um, various features of Iceland in sound, but um, also you can just revel in what is you know, really beautiful music. So that was Dreaming by Anna Torvalds Dottir, performed by the Iceland Symphony Orchestra and conducted by Daniel Bjarnason. 
I often get the sense with these Icelandic composers that their time has very much come in that these, all these extended orchestral techniques are really a wonderful way of expressing the Icelandic landscape. And without them, it wouldn't be possible to do so. And whereas in other contemporary composers, these, these techniques may seem forced or a bit gimmicky, here they seem totally natural as a way of expressing Iceland. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think it's also this idea that spectralism, you know, there's a kind of new spectralism from these composers. And Anna talks about, uh, you know, how, you know, nature is not just an inspiration. It's also a sort of um, technical tool, really, if you're a composer. Like she said once uh, here in Copenhagen that nature tells you that brown is never just brown. You know, if you're thinking about an orchestral colour and how um, an orchestra can sort of change, twist its colour palette slowly... You know, there are there are many clues in nature. There's so much that kind of unifies these composers. It's fascinating to me. Um, lots of them um, that are being recorded by this fantastic series from the Iceland Symphony Orchestra on Sono Luminous, which is proving to be a real, really wonderful resource. You can sort of see how they're each responding to the same landscape in slightly different ways but the crossover is really striking to me the the, the kind of effect that this place has on on the language i mean even björk's albums from uh, um from her period where she moved back to iceland have a lot of the same techniques in them too you know they use pedal notes they use uh, the open fifth which leif's used um they use kind of uh, in björk's case like a uh, volcanic percussion sounds and yeah the the how a country can be so uh, absorbed in its own landscape, you, you can really only understand when you go to Iceland and see it because it's just unique. So one of the most famous Icelandic compositions is, of course, Jónleif's Hekla, a vivid tone poem depicting Iceland's famous volcano, once marketed as the loudest piece of classical music ever written. But is it now a cliché or somewhat reductive to review all Icelandic compositions through the prism of their extreme, almost alien landscape? What other aspects of Icelandic culture are represented in the increasing number of talented Icelandic composers? Yeah, I mean, I think it is in a sense a cliche, although it's very fascinating to do so and very revealing. Um, and also interesting to look at how foreign composers living in Iceland have responded to the landscape. But yeah, you're right. There's a huge range of music in Iceland uh, across genres. Uh, Björk is still doing the most incredible work. There's uh, Canadians, Americans, um doing great work there and of course you know Iceland is sits between Europe and America this you know the, the product of this great tectonic struggle between the two continents and um, so there's been a huge influx of American influence um into the country I mean what's interesting is that there's a lot of crossover so there's really only one place in, in Reykjavik where you can study music at a high level a higher education level and everyone passes through it. So lots of people end up um, playing in each other's bands. Lots of orchestral musicians end up playing in rock groups, um, DJing, uh, and DJs end up working with orchestras, etc. So it's a lot bigger than um, uh, a few, a handful of composers' response to the landscape. But um, I do think that the idea of landscape sort of permeates the music in different ways. It's not always something that's so, so obviously audible. And, um, and I also do think that Iceland has, uh, f by, by nature of its kind of melting pot, has a, a, a kind of very unusual musical ecosystem when put in context of the rest of the world. OK, well, thank you. Well, turning back now towards the Scandinavian mainland and a composer who I'm sure we'll all be familiar with, but aside of his compositional output, which hasn't travelled as far as his famous piano concerto. 
This is the third of Edvard Grieg's four psalms, opus 74, his last completed composition, performed by the Norwegian soloist choir and conducted by Greta Pedersen Helgerod. Andrew, I was astonished by the strong religious feeling in this work by a composer best known for that concerto and charming salon miniatures. Church attendance in Norway currently averages just 5%. But what other aspects of Lutheranism have manifested themselves in Norway's secular politics? And how much of Scandinavia's famed social democracy is derived from its religious tradition? Yeah, it's very interesting that uh, Scandinavia has this low um, um, church attendance rate and yet... uh, you know, has such a strong Lutheran identity. And, um, you know, as we were saying earlier, this is connected to the state church, uh, the idea of the church as a sort of social institution more than a religious one. I mean, you know, Luther um, himself preached about uh, the priesthood of all believers, you know, as in there should be no hierarchy um, in the kind of uh, order of things. Um, The priest is just another member of the congregation who leads people. And, um, Greek had a real disdain for clergymen. He hated uh, Norwegian clergymen. And um, I think he had a very particularly Scandinavian attitude to religion as something quite personal. And, uh, you know, we really hear that in the Psalms, especially as this soloist sort of steps out and sings on his own and with with the choir behind him, echoing him and uh, or responding to him. And... um, I think a lot of Scandinavians, they, they, they see sort of church as something, um, you know, that you go to for your confirmation or confirmation, which is the sort of uh, the, the confirmation, as we call it in, in Britain. But it's a big thing in, in, in the Nordic countries where kind of everybody does it and it's a coming of age party uh, and also then Christmas. Um, but apart from that, it's a sort of building which you pay to maintain and um, you hope is in nice, pristine condition for when you get married, etc. Um, I mean, also, you know, as we were saying before, social democracy is the kind of big project was the eradication of poverty, which is um, a kind of fundamental of, uh, you know, the Lutheran uh, faith and, you know, flattening out and um, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, etc. Uh, there's very much a, a sense of, you know, propriety and um, trust and helping one another, uh uh, that was kind of formalised um, in the Lutheran Church. So then, of course, it means your conscience can rest a little easier. Very good. Well, we now turn even further north, inside the Arctic Circle, and to an area accompanying parts of Norway, Sweden, Finland, and even Russia, popularly known throughout the world as Lapland, and home to the Sami people and their unique musical culture of yoiking. Andrew, could you give us a brief introduction to the Sami people and yoiking in general? Of course, yeah, and actually, the, the what you were asking me about Lutheran church is kind of relevant here because the Sami is um, they're, they're the kind of you know the, the only sort of remaining indigenous tribe in Europe, and uh, they they are from the the far reaches of uh, the region, as you say, and um, traditional uh, activities or, or living was herding reindeer, but they 
they've kind of come under um, a lot of uh, pressure. Maybe that's the wrong word, but oppression more over the last century as as Scandinavia and Finland have modernized. Um, uh, the church wanted to drive out the Sami traditions and saw them as sort of heathens. And then there've been linguistic debates. There've been uh, land right issues. Um, and one of the kind of uh, battlegrounds that emerged in the 1970s and 80s was the yoik, the, the traditional song of the Sami, which is um, very hard to describe. I mean, the Sami believe that the fairies and the elves gave them yoiking which is a sort of form of wordless singing, uh, uh, which um, it's a kind of transitive verb. So, you know, I could yoik you, Paul, um, which would be a kind of wordless song in which I conjure up your spirit or the spirit of your birthday um, of some such. I mean, uh, you have to have it in your blood, I think, to be able to do it and and even to describe it. But it's such a fascinating... um, a tradition and it's uh you know like the chain dancing in um in the Faroe Islands it it still lives and it's been variously used politically by Eurovision in the 1980s to sort of make um political points about Norwegian uh government policies and then it's been used uh, there was a sort of uh, pop label emerged in the 1970s from um the far north of Norway which um kind of tried to make yoiking pop records and kind of quickly went by the wayside. Uh, but, um, yeah, discovering it for me has been really fascinating. And to sort of to let yourself be drawn into this world where someone's this kind of murmuring voice, they actually believe can transform a human into an animal uh, or into another creature in the moment of uh, yoiking. And it's a very, very distinct skill. And would you be able to introduce the excerpt of yoiking that you've got for us? Sure. I mean, I I don't know how uh, this word is pronounced uh, because my Sami isn't <laughs> too hot. But this is a track called Biegol Biegalma. <laughs> yeah, you get the idea. And um, it is um, from a remarkable album uh, called Yukaslati, um, uh, which is uh, uh, songs for Yukasjalvi, a um, place in the far north of Sweden where an organist called uh, Gunnar Idenstam gathered together a yoika and some folk musicians and some rock musicians and created this extraordinary album on BIS. And um, this track gives you a taste of uh, yoiking um, from the very beginning, but also Swedish folk music and um, other, other forms of uh, Swedish music too. Another composer who's been very influenced by the Sami people is Uti Takiainen with her new work, The Earth, Spring's Daughter, which is the first song cycle set in the Sami language.
Andrew, is the use of the Sami language here analogous to the way in which Sibelius composed works in Finnish at the time when Swedish was the predominant language in Finland? Uh, well, there are certain parallels, but I think not really, because what Utsi's doing here is is sort of um, uh, giving the, the Sami language a whole new context. I mean, it's never been um, um, used uh, in, the, in, in this sort of setting before, and it's really being used as a sort of protest on behalf of the Sami who... Um, Uti has long felt uh, are still not given the respect they deserve by the by the, the Nordic governments, and this is an ongoing issue. Um, and um, it's very interesting uh, that uh, you know Uti is is a wonderful composer who who is extremely strong willed, and I feel has felt her own um, struggle um, to sort of um, not find her voice because her voice has always been very strong, but her place and acceptance as, as a female composer is kind of mirrored by the Sami and their their struggle to survive and the struggle to sort of maintain their way of life, which is constantly either under threat or kind of used as a sort of, you know, cheapened by gimmickry. Um, and, you know, there was a song, uh, a set of pieces written a couple of years ago um, by a composer, a Norwegian composer, I think uh, Ashheim is his name, who he, he took the 21 words that the Sami have for snow and set 21 individual pieces. And it wasn't so much a setting of Sami, it was a sort of response to the Sami language and its specificity. You know, they are dealing so much with snow that they have these 21 snow states to talk to describe. So that was slightly different. But I think what Uti does here is um, is kind of lay out, you know, uh, a Sami creation myth, but also her strength of feeling about how we have to respect these people's tradition. We have to... Um, be very, very careful about how we assume that our kind of, you know, European values um, must apply to everyone on the continent. And if these are the only people on the continent, or one of the only peoples on the continent, I suppose you could talk about the Roma too, that actually do have um, a distinct identity that's kind of uh, shrinking and, and threatens to be overwhelmed by our way of life. And that is still a big political issue in Scandinavia, is the relationship with the Sami people. It is, yeah, and there's lots of uh, of work being done to try and address it. But of course, you know, the tools are blunt, and um, we can't always um, be as eloquent as um, you know musicians and composers. And that, that that's why a work like this can have such power. Inevitably, when discussing Nordic composers, we must turn to Sibelius. But as like the Grieg, aside of his compositional output, which is perhaps not well known outside of Finland, Andrew. Sibelius is often regarded as one of the most prominent in the nationalist school of composers, and this setting is from the first Finnish language novel, Saitsiman Veljesta. How important a figure was Sibelius in the growing nationalist movement in Finland, and does his fame in Finland rest not only on his music, but also in his role as a Finnish icon? Actually, one of the biggest um, Finnish hip-hop artists, uh, a guy called Paleface, um, was... um, talking to me about Sibelius a few years ago, you know, and someone coming from that tradition, it was just so fascinating to hear him say, um, you know, that Sibelius was the only composer who managed to unite the both sides of, in the Finnish civil war. He was the one thing that people sort of seemed to agree on. This is the civil war that happened um, shortly after Finnish independence in 1917. And um, I think, you know, Sibelius was, was very, very clever with what he did, you know, realising that he could create an international um, language, you know, an internationally significant musical language using 
are very distinct elements of um, the Finnish language and the Finnish folk tradition. And you hear it all over, you know, the, the kind of, um, like you were asking about Danish, I mean, Finnish language even more influences, I think, the shape of Sibelius's melodies and tunes and all these um, long melodies with, with um, kind of repeated notes and then a tail at the end, very much resembling spoken Finnish Um the idea of the rune song and the idea of, uh, you know, the sort of the, the rune singer who would sit and repeat and slowly modify the um, phrase and therefore create this kind of cyclic cumulative structure, um, which, you know, is Sibelius, his organic best, you know, Lemminkine and Sixth Symphony, Seventh Symphony. It's just endlessly fascinating what he did. I mean, the, the piece that I've chosen to play is is not so much representative of that as more um i guess his attachment to the lutheran tradition we've been talking about for so long because that's something again that is so important in his music if you think about the symphonies i guess yeah two three uh five seven one that that all end in a kind of hymn like a kind of chorale like uh moment of um not so much victory as kind of like hope, I would say. Uh, and again, you know, a composer who experienced dark patches and, and he seems constantly just searching for hope, searching for sort of one answer in his life. Could that, could that perhaps be a reason for his years of silence after a Seventh Symphony, that he felt he had achieved what he set out to do both compositionally and for Finland? Well, Finland was changing hugely at the, at, in the years when, when Sibelius was alive, but not writing. I mean, you know, tango had become huge at that point, imported from Argentina. Pop music was, was starting to infiltrate, um, you know, the consciousness. There was cinema. Sibelius felt himself isolated, and I really feel he felt himself used um, politically in that period. I think that perhaps made him feel a little redundant musically, but also, you know, if, if you look at Tapiola and The Tempest, in, in a way there was nowhere for him to go. You know, he distilled his music down to the point where it had kind of become invisible and, and perhaps the silence was um, was the natural state uh, um, for him after that. I mean, again, um, so the idea of silence is something that I, I'm trying to grapple with in the book I'm writing because I feel that the long shadow of that silence has made, make itself has made itself very much felt over the Nordic region and still, you know, still is, is doing so, especially in Denmark, where Sibelius is very highly regarded as well. Um, yeah, the, I'm not so sure about the silence. I mean, there are, I think there are, there are ingredients to, 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 to Sibelius's, you know, uh, collapse of confidence in his last years, definitely. So that was from Sibelius' six songs, Opus 18, performed by the YL Male Voice Choir and conducted by Matti Hjokki. Well, his last words there mention retreating into the forest and we must now sadly retreat and return to our homes, wherever they may be. Well, they say that travel broadens the mind and I hope this virtual travel has managed to do the same thing. 
Very good luck with your book, Andrew. When do you hope it will be released? Thanks very much. Uh, I don't know. I'm about 60% of the way through um, writing, so it's a way off yet, but I would imagine um, maybe sometime at the back end of 2021 with a fair wind. Well, you've been the consummate tour guide, and I hope the book is released to great success. I personally, for one, can't wait till it's released. Thank you very much for listening, and thank you to my producer, Matt Groove.